0: Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. Today we take a look at unions and the power of collective bargaining. (music) Union membership in the U.S. has been on the decline since the mid-1980s. Lawrence Michel is a distinguished fellow with the Economic Policy Institute, a nonprofit think tank based in Washington, D.C. He says unions in the private sector have been declining because of employer attacks that started in the 1970s and limited people's ability to obtain collective bargaining. Still, unions exist in a number of industries.
1: Unions have a, have a presence uh, in some places in manufacturing, in, in hotels, in in education, in the public sector. Uh, I mean, over the last 10 years, there's also been an assault on union representation uh, in the public sector, you know, and so that's become uh, problematic. But um, uh, unions are now down to around 7% of the private sector, maybe 10, 11% overall. What people should appreciate, however, is that roughly half of the people that are not in unions uh, Would vote for uh, collective bargaining tomorrow in their workplace if given a chance. So, what we really have is a situation where there's a big gap between the representation that people want and what they're able to obtain. And primarily because our laws governing collective bargaining uh, have very limited penalties and, and they basically have tilted the uh, landscape towards employers. And that's been going on for four or five decades.
0: I assume that's also what uh, brought to rise the right to work state, like Arizona and many other states, where even if there is a union, you don't have to be a member in order to keep your job.
1: Yeah, the right right to work was um, the right to work for less, as some people might say. It is is um, you know something that was put into the law in 1948 and and a number of uh, states you know, primarily Southern mountain states uh, adopted that, but it took off uh, in, the, in the 2010s under assault by um, uh, newly Republican dominated states. And recently the Supreme Court has made uh, all of the public sector right to work through a court decision. Uh, you know, this is something that is uh, intended to drain uh, unions of resources so that they can represent people and and develop new new members. Uh, it hasn't actually worked as um, as expected in the public sector because uh, many of the people have uh, decided to push back against that, and the unions themselves have uh, been been heavily uh, organizing their own members. With tough economic
0: times like now and the pandemic, does that some way, Strengthen unions um, as people try and band together, uh, either joining unions or starting unions, as we've seen um, in many places?
1: Well, I think there's two instances where you can see that there's the, the pent up demand to deal with workplace problems through unions. You know, one, in fact, is the, the Red for Egg movement among teachers that started in, in red states where, where uh, teachers. You know, And frankly, with the help of their school districts, went on strike and protested, sought legislation to raise pay and to improve the resources going to students to get counselors for students and other things. And that was uh, that was widespread. And it happened uh, after uh, two decades of falling teacher wages relative to other college graduates. You know, and we've also seen a, a wave of strikes during the pandemic where workers uh, in unions, some without unions, have really fought to uh, obtain uh, you know, safe working conditions and, and hazard pay. There's also a wave of, of organizing that's happening in the um, digital media, in the private sector, and in nonprofit organizations, everything from think tanks to museums where we see white collar workers, especially younger workers, are really deciding that they want uh, collective bargaining.
0: It's interesting you bring up the white collar workers because I think a lot of people, when they think about unions, think more blue collar, um, you know, the AFL CIO and things like that. But it, it is spreading to white collar more and more.
1: Absolutely, um, you know, the 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 difference between the unionization rate of college educated workers and non-college educated workers has really shrunk a lot. And there's a very strong presence among uh, professional workers, you know, and increasing presence uh, of women. Um, uh, black workers have always been disproportionately union. That became a little less so because they, they took the brunt of a lot of the fall of, of unionization. But we, we really see that, um, you know, unions today are the largest organization representing women, representing minorities. You know that's a really important thing, and, and we know that as we rebuild collective bargaining, as I I think will be a priority for President-elect Biden and, and Democrats, we will see that moving forward, a lot of the people that who are going to be organized are going to be white collar, are going to be women, are going to be people of color, and it's not as if uh, you know white men are no longer going to be union or have ability to do so, but I think it's going to be a, a much more pervasive um, thing. A report from.
0: From your organization, from EPI, outlined some ways that uh, the President Trump's handling of the pandemic has hurt workers, including cutting boost unemployment benefits. Can you talk a little bit about these and what are some of the other ways the Trump administration has uh, impacted workers?
1: Well, the Trump appointees at the National Labor Relations Board have done everything possible to weaken unions. Everything from suspending, basically suspending union elections during the pandemic and, and not allowing them to be Mail ballot, you know, to uh, trying to promote the fact that Uber drivers are are really not employees, that they're really independent contractors in control of their work, to, um, you know, many other things. Um, You know, in recent years, uh, the Supreme Court has decided that uh, the NLRB was not allowed to require that employers post something on their bulletin board providing people information as to what their rights were. Under labor law, because that violated the employer's speech for some in some way. You know, under the pandemic, I mean, the the Trump OSHA uh, Safety and Health Administration has refused that to really even enforce their own laws, uh, to uh, develop regulations that re- employers have to follow to make people safe. And now you see the uh, Senate Republicans under McConnell. Uh, actually uh, insisting that somehow employers uh, should be free from any liability of anything uh, virus-related that should affect uh, their workers. And they want to do that without even providing any kind of standard that employers want uh, to meet. They just want to make sure that you can't sue an employer for anything that might happen to you, no matter what the employer basically does.
0: So I would guess you're uh, hopeful for some changes come January 21st with uh, a Biden administration. What are you hoping to see uh, quickly or over four years of a Biden administration?
1: We need to rebuild collective bargaining back better. And uh, President-elect Biden has uh, the most extensive uh, agenda for what I would call labor standards and union policy. I mean, on labor standards, everything from restoring overtime pay, raising the minimum wage, uh, you know, dealing with um, employee misclassification, like the Uber situation, dealing with racial equity, uh, et cetera. On the union side, you know, there's proposals to uh, provide comprehensive uh, reform through legislation. The House of Representatives passed such a bill earlier this year. Of course, that will be difficult to do with a Senate controlled by Republicans and with a still existent filibuster. But there are a lot of different things that the Department of Labor can do and will do to assist workers through executive action, administrative action, and regulation. And um, there's a there's a, a comparable set of things that can be done at the National Labor Relations Board. So I think that things will be turning to be more favorable to workers. You know, it's, it's remarkable to me that uh, President Trump uh, built himself as a pro-worker candidate. Uh, and I think people don't really know the litany of all the ways that he has really served the Chamber of Commerce and, and employers uh, rather than, than workers. But I think that era is now over.
0: All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us.
1: Thank you for asking and thank you for your interest.
0: That was Lawrence Michel with the Economic Policy Institute. At the start of the pandemic, the University of Arizona announced a furlough and salary reduction plan the administration said was necessary to stave off financial disaster based on projected drops in student enrollment. The amount of pay cuts combined with the university's initial plan to resume in-person classes in the fall prompted faculty and staff to form the Coalition for Academic Justice at UA. The coalition lobbied the university administration for changes to the furlough plan and salary cuts. In August, many of the same people formed Local 765, the United Campus Workers of Arizona. Celeste Gonzalez de Bustamante is a UA journalism professor and is a founding member of both the coalition and the union. We asked her to explain the difference between the two.
2: You know we're trying to figure that out right now as well what's the difference between a union and a coalition the coalition started over the summer after the drastic furloughs and pay cut plans were announced and then a few months later we established the union the cwa the united campus workers of arizona so what a union can do concretely is uh, tap into the national organization Uh, they have uh, People who have been working on these issues for, for decades, if not longer, and we can use their expertise. And we've hired two new organizers. Uh, we have been able to consult with them on workplace environment issues, whereas the coalition is a little bit more flexible, right? So we, the Coalition for Academic Justice looks at and is uh, our members are interested in issues such as social justice, working with our allies, like the Coalition of Black Students and Allies, um, Native SOAR. Not that the union isn't interested in that, but they are typically more aligned with looking specifically at workplace conditions.
0: And both are working, as you said, at different things, but also in parallel at the same time. So one is not exclusive of the other.
2: Exactly, exactly. We think that we we can, as having both of these organizations, push back on the university on different issues in kind of different ways. For example, as you know, the union cannot collectively bargain with the administrators of our university. It's uh, against state law right? I mean, eventually down the line, we would love for state law to change and be able to do that. But for the time being, that's where the Coalition for Academic Justice, KAWA, can be effective and working very directly with shared governance groups, the faculty senate, some of these committees that have come out of the faculty senate, and also directly with um, some of the administrators. We've met with the head of HR, Uh, many, many times over the past months to find out exactly how many people are being laid off or are retiring in the midst of this pandemic and, and the challenges that we're facing.
0: This isn't just faculty. It's not a staff union. It's faculty, staff, and grad students. And I assume undergrads could get involved, especially with the coalition, if they felt the need.
2: That's right. We are different in that way. We're what we consider a wall-to-wall union. So basically anybody who gets a paycheck from the university can join our union. And that's not typical of most unions on campuses. Most are faculty-based or staff-based or maybe grad students. And uh, that's a challenge for us because, uh, you know, w- we work in our silos in a way. And right now we we were trying to flatten that university's hierarchy, so that means that faculty are um, are working with grad students in ways that we haven't, in, you know, in the past, and with staff. And so it's it's really rewarding to try to restructure the university in that way, but also it's a challenge because we've never done that before.
0: Once, hopefully, all of this pandemic is behind us, what do you see the role of the organizations going forward since they really did come out of the response to the pandemic?
2: I think we are going to be working closely together to re-envision what this university looks like. And uh, this is a, a great time to be doing that because there we know there is a lot of change going on, but we want to be very much a part of that in terms of making sure that we don't change in ways that are, are going to negatively impact students or faculty or staff. but also to re-envision the way that we are uh, we are working on this thing that we call, you know, higher education. and so that we have a higher education system that really connects and is for students, in Arizona, and that they get the highest quality education possible, that we don't drift away from our core mission, um, and that we have our core mission being um, teaching and outreach and research. We want to make sure that those are not forgotten in the midst of uh, everything that's going on, and that we create a more just, equitable, and compassionate university. The university likes to talk about compassion, but We're not really seeing that in the way that they are making decisions right now. Um, Let me just give you one example. We found out through the union and talking with some of the custodial staff that they, since the pandemic, have had to do much more work, that uh, staff have uh, either retired or quit, and then staff that are remaining are having to pick up that work, and so they're doing more work and being forced to do that same, um, to do more work with the same salary and in the same amount of time. So we've heard of of, uh, custodial workers who are mostly Latina women and who are taking on the greatest risks. They are having difficulties um, trying to get all their work done. They're getting hurt on the job. And so there are real serious issues about people not getting paid adequately, that they're not getting protected adequately. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about re-envisioning this university is protecting all of the people who make this university what it is.
0: One of the things that you all talked about very early in the formation uh, of the groups was the furlough plan it ended earlier or it's scheduled to end earlier than expected. Now it's supposed to end in February rather than in June. Uh, Do you think the work that you all did and the expressed resistance to that plan helped change the furlough and make it end earlier?
2: You know, I'm not in uh, conversations, everyday conversations with President Robbins or Lisa Rolney, our CFO, but I have heard from other uh, administrators that we are being heard, that we are sort of being discussed in these higher level meetings. So I I can only say and, and sort of come to the conclusion that yes, because we did push back, because we were bringing these issues to the Faculty Senate and otherwise in making them public, that the university did decide to at least scale back somewhat its initial really extreme furlough plan, which we are happy about, and we consider that a victory.
0: All right, well, thanks for spending some time with us.
2: Yeah, thank you for your, for your interest.
0: That was Celeste Gonzalez de Bustamante, a UA journalism professor and founding member of the university's newly formed Coalition for Academic Justice and Union. When we talk about unions, many people may think of the Teamsters, or trade industries. But many other groups are moving toward collective bargaining. Last year, the staff at the Arizona Republic, the state's largest newspaper, voted to form a union. Rebecca Sanders with the Arizona Republic says journalists across America have a long history of unionizing.
3: And... In recent years, we've seen another wave of unionizing at newspapers because our industry is in such crisis. Um, We have seen wave after wave of layoffs and cuts to benefits and all kinds of issues that are really uh, detrimental to journalists, working conditions and way of life. Um, It's hard to see a future in our industry if we're not able to afford to raise a family and save for retirement and afford our health care, And so uh, a big part of forming a union at a newspaper is simply about having a seat at the table, being able to have a conversation with the corporation or with management about benefits and wages and working hours and have some input on big decisions that are affecting our lives.
0: What were the steps that led to that decision?
3: A big part of our inspiration for unionizing at the Arizona Republic uh, came from watching the Los Angeles Times, uh, you know, a nearby large newspaper that um, really was uh, very dedicated at, in their fight for their um, staff and and for unionizing. Um, so so they had a big influence on us. Um, the other large motivation was that, Gannett, which is the umbrella corporation that owns the Arizona Republic, was preparing to go through a merger. And this was going to create the largest newspaper company in the country. And um, already the executives were talking about cutting three to $400 million in spending. Well, that means our 401Ks, that means no more raises, that means higher healthcare costs, real impacts on real people um, when this merger went through, and those cuts were going to come down on us if we didn't uh, stand up for ourselves and say, no, we need to talk about this, and we need to make the decisions that are best for our newsroom.
0: Did you have an opportunity to talk with management kind of along the way, this continuum? And what was their reaction when it was announced that you all were going to try and form a union and then eventually did effectively uh, uh, form a union?
3: I see a union, uh, whether it's at a newspaper or elsewhere, as a benefit for management. We're able to, because we're talking to our coworkers day in, day out, and hearing each other's experiences and stories, we're able to bring to management's attention, perhaps issues that are going wrong or, you know, that are need to be fixed that perhaps they're not aware of. And we can talk about how to solve those issues before they fester into a bigger problem or, or even someone leaving the paper because um, they felt like things weren't taken care of. Um, I see the union as a way to collaborate with management to make sure that we're offering the pay and benefits and working conditions that retains workers to do great journalism and allows them to, you know, live in their community and really uh, invest in doing great journalism here.
0: What percentage of the staff ended up joining?
3: When we held our union election in October of 2019, 70% of the uh, eligible employees voted yes. So we won by a landslide. It was two to one. Um, right now, we're in the process of bargaining our first contract. So we don't exactly have uh, you know dues paying members until we um, ratify that first contract, but You know, bargaining a first contract is grueling, especially in this time when uh, budgets are tight and the company doesn't want to give up control of anything. But uh, we feel like it's really important to make sure that we're protected in this contract. So things like ensuring that all of our members have the protective gear for COVID and for protests that they need. Uh, making sure that you can't just be fired for no reason. There has to be just cause. During the pandemic, uh, our company slashed the company 401k match uh, for employees across the country. But because we had a union, we were able to protect that.
0: A new article in the Columbia Journalism Review talked about how unions can possibly help to add diversity to newsrooms? Is that something that you all are looking to do?
3: Absolutely. Diversity is a top value for our guild, and it's something that we care deeply about. And we're dedicated to bargaining in our contract uh, provisions that help diversity. We have been asking Gannett to agree in our contract to improve hiring and recruitment and retention of people of color, women, people with disabilities, folks who are generally underrepresented in newsrooms. And we're also uh, conducting a pay equity study that will look at whether there are pay gaps between men and women, among different races to see if there needs to be some changes to ensure equal pay for equal work.
0: You mentioned earlier the Los Angeles Times and how they were a bit of an inspiration uh, for you all as they went forward. We've seen newspapers, startup unions more and more in recent years, it seems like. Is that because of Gannett and big companies buying up more and more what used to be? Hometown newspapers?
3: Of course. We've seen huge moves towards consolidation across the country of media companies. And now the vast majority of newspapers in the United States are owned or run by hedge funds and private equity funds that don't historically have a a heart for journalism, Uh, like family owned uh, you know, newspapers once did. Instead, it's all about the bottom line and the return to shareholders. And unfortunately, what we do is a public service. Um, it's great to be able to um, have a business that you know, does advertising and has revenue streams to support our journalism, but we're really not set up to be like a Fortune 500 company that just cares about the stock price. So unionizing is one, uh, one tool in the toolbox for journalists to say, no, we really need to focus on investment and newsrooms and on the quality of journalism. All
0: right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Rebecca Sanders, the consumer protection reporter at the Arizona Republic, discussing the decision to form a union last year at the paper. And that's the buzz for this week. Next week, we'll be discussing the health of the Santa Cruz River. Be sure to join us. Ariana Brochus is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Antiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.